Well, as we get started this morning, if you need a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back there. We are continuing in the book of Matthew, and I've asked John this morning to, to read our passage for us. Okay, we'll be in the book of Matthew in uh, chapter 22, and we're reading verses 15 through 33. So the Word of God says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. So then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the, wo the woman died, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Dear Father, just let this word, uh, let us hear this word and help it just to sink into our hearts, Lord. Dear Father, just to sit at your feet, uh, just like the song described, and just to hear the wisdom of you, Lord. Dear Father, just help us to depend on you whenever there are times in our lives where we feel questioned, whenever we feel anxiety, Lord, and don't know who to turn to. Dear Lord, help us to turn to you, our Lord God, the giver of all truth. Help us to not doubt when you give us message, Lord, but to follow you and to be obedient in what you tell us to do, Lord. Dear Lord, as we hear the message today, Help us to open our ears and our minds to your truth. Dear Father, we belong to you, our Lord God. Help us to follow you uh, just with, with everything that we have, Lord, not to hold back in different parts of our life, but to follow you wholeheartedly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Well, it seems we are surrounded by ongoing arguments. 
Anybody say think the same thing? There, there's, a, there's constant uh, debate, constant questions about what is good, what is right, what is best, what is true, right? Um, and it's nonstop. It's all around us. It's a, it's a swirling mess in some cases, and, and, and some of us respond to it in one way, some of us respond another way. Um, de- depending on personalities, it t- depending on how God made us, uh, some of us will, will jump into the fray and, and swing in with, with both fists of here, you know, I'm going to figure out what is right, I'm gonna, and I'm going to make sure everybody knows, or there's other, others going, just enough already, I just, just point me in the direction of what is right and good, and, all, and, and let's just relax already, right? There's, there's a lot of different responses to it, but... There's this sense of ambiguity to what is right and true. It's just swirling and confusing around us. Um, If you go to the the number one source of truth, the Google, and you search for (laughs) definition of truth, it you get it takes you to the other you know major source of truth, which is Wikipedia. and it gives you just a short definition, which is really today's definition, dictionary definition, anything that it's in accordance with fact or reality. There's so much argument about what is fact and what is reality. Um, it, it's, it's amazing to me, and, and, it's, and it, we have fact checkers. And no one trusts fact checkers, right? Uh, we have... Um, We've come out of what is postmodernism, which is amazing to me how much even the, the discussion of what is true uh, is out there right now, coming out of postmodernism, where basically you had all the philosophers got all their thinking in there to say, you know, we can't really know any absolute truth, right? And, and everything's just relative. Really, what's true for you might be different than what's true for me. And so any sense of absolute truth, concrete Right versus wrong was challenged uh, and, and really affected uh, the culture that we live in. Um, that's, we're, we're coming out of generations of that, and now um, arguments just, they, there's no foundation for them when they're trying to get into what is fact, what is reality, what is true. Uh, John and I were gifted with some original Webster dictionaries some time ago, and if you look up the definition of truth uh, from the original of, of you know, the, the culture at that time, actually appealed to Scripture to answer that question and to get examples of what is true. There was a reference to something solid that is completely missing now. Well, why is that? Why, how, why has this actually been a problem through the ages? Romans 1.8 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Oh, that's a scary thing. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. 
As long as there's sin in the world, as long as we have something to hide, we don't really want the truth. Right? The truth, the raw truth, is going to be something that is suppressed, especially what is true about God. And that comes from living in a world of sin, in a world where there's shame, in a world where there's everyone is guilty. And we, we want truth when it's convenient, but we don't want truth in every respect because there's things that truth will reveal that are not to our benefit. And so we have this state of unrest, of turmoil, uncertainty in the world, full of selfish opinions, motives, corruption, hidden agendas, right? That's purposes to do evil. That, that's in it. That, that's what we're experiencing There isn't a solid foundation of truth in that experience. Um, you know, it was the same in Jesus' day? Because it was the same problem in Jesus' day. It was still a sinful world, and there was all the different political groups. Just like we have today, there's all the discussion. What's right? What's good? Um, and, and what we're seeing here in this passage is three different groups within the Jews. There's a whole lot more groups than that, but three within the Jewish community uh, who really don't like each other, have plenty of arguments with each other, but they have one thing in common. They don't like Jesus. Jesus brought into the world an anchor of truth, of light and darkness. In him was no falsehood. Um, the three groups, uh, the Herodians, we haven't seen them a lot. Uh, they're more of a political party among the Jews who were, they, they thought Herod was a good thing. The Herod family was a good thing, right? Um, and they're, they're less uh, conservative as Jews go, and, and they're all for Herod. There's the Herodians. Well, they didn't get along well with the Pharisees because the Pharisees hated Rome. They hated the rule of other non-Jewish authorities over them. And, uh, <clears throat> and so they didn't get along with the Herodians. They're working together with them now here. And then, and then you have the Sadducees who, as it says here, don't believe in the resurrection. So they're sad, you see. You can always remember that. Um, but the Sadducees, uh, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't get along with the Pharisees. They didn't get along with the Herodians because the Herodians liked the Herod's family, right? It's a, they don't all get together. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend is kind of going on here as they're working together against Jesus. So verse 15 then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. That's, that's going on around us. How can we bring this person down? Get them to say the wrong thing. But they're dealing with Jesus. He has nothing to hide. He only speaks what's true, right? But they're going to try. And they sent their disciples, so the Pharisees didn't want to actually be with I think it's kind of funny. Yeah, we're going to work together with the Herodians. We're going to send our disciples to go do this with you. We're not going to show ourselves with them. Um, 
But they sent their disciples uh, to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Here's the irony of their insincere platitudes. They're right. He is true. And they, they don't believe it. They're, they're just prefacing their trap, right? It's, they're building him up in order to try to capture him. But everything they said there is true. Um, we know, they said, uh, teacher, we know that you are true. Jesus is true. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the embodiment of truth. You teach the way of God truthfully. Absolutely. He doesn't say anything except what the Father gives him to say. You do not care about anyone's opinion and are swayed by appearances. Absolutely. What does he care mostly about? Is what the Father wants. He's not going to speak based on people's opinions. Jesus is an anchor of truth in the world, light of truth in the world. And you know what? He is today too. He is an anchor of truth, of what is true. In, in the swirl of, of conversations, of selfish opinions, of selfish motives, of corruption, of hidden agendas, agendas to do evil that's around us, that, that we're a part of, that we are uh, in the midst of, there's an anchor of truth that's in Jesus Christ. What are we encouraged to do in the Scripture with respect to Jesus Christ? Abide in Him. Live in Him. Embed our lives into Him. You realize, church, you have every provision to live your life anchored in truth. To be in the same place as Christ is. To not be pulled around like, like waves of the sea, pulling you this way, pulling you that way, in a little boat that can't control anything. You put down an anchor into what is true, and Christ holds you there. But are you anchored in Christ? We have every provision we need in Christ. And so as we're looking at Jesus' example here, as they're attacking him, the, the darkness doesn't like the light. The, you know, we all have something to hide, and, and we don't like it when that's exposed. The world does not like the presence of Christ, the truth of Christ in the midst of what is a swirl of darkness. So they'll attack Christ. And, and, and as they do that, we can expect if we stand with Christ and we stand for what is true, we can expect the same treatment. Um, but we can live this life anchored in truth. So verse 17, here's their plan. Here's how they're going to get him. Tell us then, they tell to Jesus, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They've got it. Here's the question. This is the one that's going to get him. Because if he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, 
then they can go to the Jewish side with the Pharisees and say, look at the blasphemy that you're teaching, right? Everything Caesar stands for goes right against the Ten Commandments. Caesar calls himself God. His, his image is, is inscribed on the coin. You, you go into Jewish uh, uh, archaeological digs and everything, you're not going to find pictures of people because in the Ten Commandments it said there should you know, no graven image. They took that and said, no, we're not going to do any graven image of anything. And so to have the face of a man on a coin and to have him calling himself God, taxes spent, to that, that's evil. This is goes against everything. No, the Jews should be ruling, right? And so if, they say, if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, all right, we got him there. But if he says no, then we appeal to the Romans. We appeal to the Herodians. No. Look, Jesus said he shouldn't pay taxes. We got him there, right? No matter what he says, we got him. Well, that's their strategy. Here's the problem. Jesus is standing in a place of what is true. As people try to trick you, the only time what you say will be offensive is when it truly is offensive and it's okay for it to be offensive. Right? The gospel is offensive. We're sinners. So the gospel starts with. But when you're in a place of truth, and they try to trick you here, trick you there, it, your life has this solid consistency because you're not trying to promote yourself there, promote yourself over here, or, or try to hide this in a way there in the way you say it. No, you just speak what's true. And they didn't know what was true. They're coming from a, a place where they see this as an irreconcilable uh, uh, issue. But Jesus knows what's true. Um, look in verse 18. Um, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Here's what he already knows what is true. He knows where they're coming from. He knows that all those platitudes that they started with is not what's in their heart. It's malice, right? You hypocrites. Here's the first thing. As we're getting into what it is it to be anchored in truth, and he's just identifying where they're coming from, and it's in contrast to where he's at. They are hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? The, the word for a hypocrite there comes from uh, actually play acting. It's it, literally in the Greek, it's you're, you're, a, you're an actor, right? You're someone who puts on an act. What's on the outside is not the same as what's on the inside. What you're saying with your mouth is not what you're believing in your heart. That's a hypocrite. Here's the thing about being anchored in the truth. You have nothing to hide. Jesus had nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. We live in a world where we're always hiding something. But to be anchored in truth is a place where you have nothing to hide. Jesus had no shame. Right? He had nothing to hide. 
When he spoke in parables, he was still speaking the truth, and, and, it, and it was for the purpose of God. He wasn't trying to hide any shameful thing. He was declaring who he is, and as he gets closer to the right time, he declares it truthfully, clearly. There's nothing that he said that would contradict himself. Proverbs 28, 6. It is better to be a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who's crooked in his ways. Often the temptation to just kind of not be truthful is for the promise of riches and the promise of reward that this world has to offer. It is so much better to be poor and have integrity. What's integrity? It's the opposite of being a hypocrite. It's where what's on the outside matches what's on the inside. That's integrity. There's no difference from, from who you are in private by yourself when no one can see to who you are in public. You are one person. Jesus had perfect integrity and it is better to be a person of integrity and be poor because of your integrity than to be rich having cut corners, having been not quite truthful. We come to God. Nothing is hidden from God. He knows us more than we know ourselves. We might even be deceiving ourselves and God knows better. No, I know your heart. I know where you're at. And we want to hide. That's why darkness hates the light. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be exposed. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid in the garden as if you can hide from God. But that's what we want to do. We want to hide because there's shame. So how do we enter into the place, that anchored place of walking in truth, that secure refuge of truth where Jesus is at? One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 32. You go through the whole thing, but just Psalm 32, the first part. Blessed is the one whose transgression, that shamefulness, that thing to hide, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts. No iniquity. I come before God. He sees it all, but he does not count my iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. To be a person in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's no, i, I got to hide this part. I can't fully tell the truth. I'm going to just tell 90% of the truth and kind of leave out conveniently that last 10%, right? That's, that's just... But blessed is the person who's in, spirit, in their spirit. There is no deceit. And then, and then you have David describing um, what it's like to be under the guilt and shame of sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged, here's how we get there, church. 
Here's how we enter into that foundation of truth, that anchor of truth, that place of rest and refuge. I acknowledge my sin to you, God. I didn't cover it anymore. I acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I've done these things. I said I will confess my, transition, my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's how we enter into a place of truth. Through what Jesus provided on the cross, forgiveness of sin, so that we could abide in Him, so that we could know Him. I think perhaps one of the greatest descriptions of the refuge and soul rest that we have in Christ is those three words, nothing to hide. That's Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to argue to protect yourself. You don't have to debate to show yourself right. You're safe in the provision of Christ through the cross. So what was Jesus' answer to their impossible question? Should you pay taxes to Caesar? Verse 19, Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? Caesar's, he said. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is coming from an understanding of what is true. They're saying, you can't find a place here. He's saying, what does Jesus know to be true? God appointed Caesar, even though Caesar is this godless man who calls himself God, just as God appointed Nebuchadnezzar, he appointed Cyrus, he appointed every other world leader and the leaders that are here today over our country, over our nations today, God appointed them. Caesar's an evil man. You're under him as he is under God. There's no conflict when I walk in the truth because I'm going to submit to God. If ever submitting to Caesar conflicts with submitting to God, who's the greater authority? God. But if they don't conflict, then I'm submitting to God by submitting to that authority that's over me. That's the understanding that is true. Jesus knew how things were. They didn't get it. Jesus' design would have said, Jews, you are in a position under Herod. You're in a position under Pilate. You're in a position under Caesar. You're... Submit to them. Pay the taxes. Trust God. And in everything, submit to the Lord. Do you see God as almighty as his hand over everything? Do we see today God as almighty, his hand over everything? 
Does the Bible give us instruction on how we should treat our leaders? Talk about our leaders. Yes, we're supposed to pray for them. Do they have to be righteous in order to do that? Well, the example is some very unrighteous men. That I think some of the leaders in our, in our world today pale in comparison to how... I, we have some out there that consider, them a consider themselves a deity. But not like they did back then. And yet still... Jesus says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. It, it's an understanding that is true. And they're amazed. Wow! Actually, everything they needed to have that same perspective was right in their scripture if they had truly paid attention. Well, it didn't work out for them. So, uh, tag team... Um, the Herodians and the Pharisees tag out to the Sadducees. All right, you're in. Ding, ding. Next round. Um, verse 22. I'm in the wrong place. There we go. Okay, they marveled, left and went away. Verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. Right? That's key to where they're coming from in their argument. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, and they've got this scenario that's going to, all right, you say there's a resurrection. Um, we're going to just show how that doesn't work. How many ways have we seen people use Scripture and say, here, I'll show you how this doesn't work, how this cannot possibly be. Here's what's wrong with Christianity. Here's what's wrong with your beliefs. Here's what's wrong with that foundation that you're standing on that you think is so good. Look, you know, how did uh, this happen or that happen, right? You know, where did all those people come from uh, with Adam and Eve? And you know, you can, there's so many different arguments against trying to show how Scripture cannot be true, and yet they're coming from a place of not understanding it. Same thing here. So, verse 23, uh, 24, saying, Teacher, Moses said, all right, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're quoting Scripture. They're going back to the, the Scripture. They trust the Scripture, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. And now here's their, their scenario, right? Hypothetical. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring left his wife. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother, following that law of Moses, right? So too, the second and third down to the seventh, right? After them all, the woman died. All right, in heaven. Whose wife will she be? Ah, we got you. Right? You're following the law. See how, the, see, see how your belief of resurrection just falls apart? Because you got this law, and if you follow it, it doesn't work. Jesus answered them, verse 29, you are wrong. <laughs> that could be your, the beginning of your answer. Someone's like, here's, here's what it is. 
you know, look at all this problem you have. You are wrong, okay? But you better be able to explain it graciously after that. Why are they wrong? Um, well, and this might be part of your answer too, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't understand it. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You just don't get it. It's not even an argument. So many times when, when you have somebody, if you know God's word and someone comes in and says, well, look at this, and you're like, you just don't get it. And you just need to help them understand what you understand already. It's obvious if you actually take the time to read God's word and you trust it. So, in the, in, in the, so I, I'm sorry if this is news to you. As much as you love your wife or your husband, there's no marriage in heaven, right? Um, actually, there is marriage. The whole church is married to Christ. Um, but it's going to be different there. It's going to be better. Um, you're like, How could that be better? It's going to be better, uh, qualitatively better. So, but like the, in that respect, we're like angels in heaven. Um, and as for the resurrection from the dead, all right, he's going to just go to the, the issue that they have. And he's going to go to their part of the scripture that they trust as scripture, right? The first five books. As for the resurrection from the dead, um, have you not read what was said to you by God? And he's going back to the burning bush incident. I, if... if you know, when Moses was there before the burning bush and God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. If you had just been taking in God's word, it would have been just obvious. The hope, the, the realization that that all of these who, who have shown faith and belief in God have continued to be spoken of. And Jesus just goes to the word of God right there that they understand. It's right there in front of them. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Why were they mistaken? Verse 29, back in verse 29, the same, um, sorry, verse 20, yes. Boy, I'm having a hard time jumping in my own text. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Actually, that word for wrong, um, more literally, is deceived in the present passive tense. In other words, you are being, you're in a state of being deceived, right? You are in a state of being deceived why? Two things. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Why are we in a state of being deceived? Same reasons. Why is the world in a state of being deceived? We've got to be able to make that connection, church. This is it. It's been it since man fell apart in sin. Through the ages, the reason why we're continually in a state of being deceived in this swirl of mess of selfish opinions and corruption and hidden agendas and, and un unable to lock down what is the truth, 
don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So how do we, how, how do we, what is it to be anchored in truth? First, it's to have nothing to hide through the provision of the cross and faith in Jesus Christ. But then also, we need knowledge of God's word. How can I live my life anchored in truth? I need to know God's word, knowledge of God's word. I've been spending some time in 2 Timothy, 1st and 2 Timothy, great books. Um, Let's touch this just a second. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. Paul's telling Timothy, his disciple, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Approved by who? God. Any reason to be ashamed? If I'm approved by God, I have zero shame. (laughs) I don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks. I'm approved by God. Do your best to present yourself as one approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed Rightly doing what? Handling the word of truth. Literally, uh, in the Greek, cutting straight the word of truth. Paul was a tent maker. And if, if you've ever done, and I don't do sewing or crafts, but if you ever did a patchwork quilt, or they're doing, you know, my, my wife and my daughter have been doing those little patches, they get the little thing, they got... How important is it that you cut straight the pieces, right? That you don't add too much and you don't take away too much, right? It has to be fitting. And the same thing I would imagine in making a tent and why Paul used that term here. Make sure when you handle the scriptures, you cut it straight. You're not adding to it. You're not taking away. It should fit together the whole of scripture, right? The sum of your word is truth. The whole of scripture fits together. God does not contradict himself. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Why, as we're going through Matthew, do I end up jumping up over to all these other passages? Because the the way I understand what is true and what it means, what the intent is, is to compare to other Scripture. Does it fit? And that's something you can learn and understand as you read what? Commentaries, they're helpful. Uh, Self-help books, not so much. Some of them are good. Read God's Word. Be familiar with it. Right? You start, if you've gone through, we're about to get to January. That's a great time to say, all right, I've got a a New Year's resolution. The the Bible app has reading, you know, reading plans. Some of them a year, some of them longer. If you make it a practice to read God's Word regularly, then you'll know when you read something. Oh, it can't mean that because I've been reading God's Word. I understand what, what God's Word teaches and so that can't mean something contrary to that. It needs to fit. Um, so someone who's approved by God cutting straight Treating God's word for what it is. And then verse 16, um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, but avoid what? (laughs) Everything that's going on around us. 
irreverent babble. You know, it was going around them too. But I think it's just been amplified today. As soon as the internet came and you could, and you could connect to everyone worldwide and then you put a smart device in everybody's hand where all the time, everywhere, you have connectivity to the conversation, uh, it just took the irreverent babble and raised the volume up. Why is it irreverent? Irreverent to who? To God. What's missing in the conversation on Twitter, on Facebook? The anchor of truth. If, if God isn't in it, then what is it? It's babble. Were they babbled on and babbled on? No. It's babble. It's, it's irreverent babble. That, that's a lot of what it is. We have Christ in us. We should be bringing the anchor of truth into the conversation. Three times in this passage, actually, he warns them to avoid the irreverent babble, the arguments um, that don't have God in them. For what will it do? Verse 16 in 2 Timothy 2. It will lead people... Towards the truth? No, into more and more ungodliness, further away from the truth, further away from what is good, further away from what is right is where irreverent babble leads. And now we've just raised the volume on it. And the world is being led away from what is good and right and true. How do you turn around and go back in to what is good and right and true? Also in 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm glad you asked. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Teaching, how, what it is we are supposed to do, what is right, for reproof, for saying, look, what you're doing is wrong. Right? For, for calling things out. As you read God's Word in your own life, you're like, well, I thought that was good and right, but God just showed me that part of me is wrong. For correction, that's taking in an area that you're wrong and helping you to go correct and get back towards what's right. And for training in righteousness, how do I live my life in this place anchored in truth and what is right and good? God's Word gives us that. So as a believer, we need to know God's Word, standing in the truth, and don't use God's Word as a platform to go into the conversations now swinging God's Word for the purpose of your own gain. We don't stand on God's Word as much as we stand under God's Word, right? The authority of God's Word rests on me changing my attitudes, my opinions, my agendas. And that's the place then to speak in truth into an argument. So Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, he'd said two things. You're deceived because you neither know 
scriptures. Neither the scriptures nor the power of God. When we open God's word, we're not just encountering an ancient book, something God wrote a long time ago, and um, now we're trying to discern an ancient text. We are encountering God, present, active, the Holy Spirit, teaching us through His word. He's the one. The word is God Breathe. That was the Holy Spirit working through more than 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years to create something that fits perfectly together. When you cut it straight, it fits. It is only possible that this is God's Word. And as we open it in the morning, as we got the coffee there and, and, and we're still a little bleary-eyed and we open God's Word and, and in prayer, God, show me from your Word this morning, we are encountering Him. Not just a book. So here's the the last part. So we have nothing to hide. This is a place of truth. Knowledge of God's word, walking, being corrected, being instructed in truth. And this last one, vitally important, intimate knowledge of God. In that 2 Timothy passage, right after it talks about irreverent babble, and, and then it goes into the just the spread of that, like gangrene and, and just this nasty, what it, what it does and, and how it even is upsetting the faith of believers as a result and how bad that is. And, and we can feel that. We're, we're, we just came through the last two years. The church, I think our church did really well, but there was churches hard divided on, on their response to covid That was division. There should be no division in the church, but it became an instrument of division. That's being pulled. That's that's having things happen uh, that that are upsetting the faith of some. And and it comes in different forms and different things as we're being pulled, but there's a confident assertion that that God makes through, through Paul. 2 Timothy Uh, 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands, firm foundation, you have that church, no matter what comes next in the swirl that is Twitter and politics and social and everything else, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal and it gives us two things, just picturing this foundation in Christ and two seals upon it. First, the Lord knows those who are His. That word knows, that's a, that's a different Greek word than what was used for, hey, Sadducees, you don't know the Scripture, you don't know the power of God. They, they don't informationally know. They don't even intellectually know those things. But this is a different, this is gnosko. This is intimate, personal, deep knowledge. God knows you. You are His. Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know, gnosko, I know deeply, intimately, personally, my own, and my own know me. 
That's the place of security. That's the place. Foundation doesn't matter what's swirling around you, what craziness is going on, how the opinions of man and those around you, even those close to you, uh, I'm known by God and I know Him deeply, intimately, personally. And then the other seal upon that firm foundation is what comes really out of uh, a deep, intimate knowledge of God, of, of, of Christ, of Jesus in my life is a growing conviction that, that anything else in my life other than Him pales in comparison. I want His name to be known. I want Him to be glorified. So here's the other seal. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I don't, all of those shameful things that were reason to hide, I don't need to walk in those anymore. I'm going to walk in the ways of God. In obedience to Christ, that's the desire of my heart. That foundation that we have in Christ, intimate knowledge of God, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing Him personally, one of the, one of the foundational um, things that we teach uh, when we go into um, spiritual leadership class and, and anything uh, in this church where you'd be part of ministry, before you get heavily involved in ministry, more important than that is you're being heavily, heavily involved in an intimate, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Intimacy before ministry. This is vital for you to walk in the security and truth, to be effective Jesus' authority was being questioned. He said in John 7, 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. When we argue, when we just got to be right, we always feel like we got to be right. Right? What are we seeking? our own glory. But here's, here's just a description of what it is to be in this place of refuge that Jesus lived in, that Jesus walked in, that we also have every provision to live in and walk in no matter how crazy it gets around us. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Is True, and in him there is no falsehood. What a place of rest. doesn't matter what we face, church. If, if, if we can be in that place, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm not trying to prove myself. I just want to glorify the one who sent me. I just want to glorify the one who's, who's deserving of glory. That's what Jesus was there, glorifying the Father, glorifying the Father, glorifying the Father. And now, as servants of Christ, we follow His example, glorify Christ, glorify Christ, glorify Christ. Is that, is that in our heart, in the midst of every conflict, every, it doesn't matter what part of what's going on around us. Is it, the, is it, is it a political argument? Is it... Uh, is it a religious argument? Is it, um, is it about Kyle? Is it about the United States? Is it about other countries? 
is at the very core of what's motivating and driving us, this desire to do the will and to glorify the one who has sent us. Oh, the rest that's there, the peace that's there, the security and refuge that's there, because who, who can undo that? You attack me and all day long and we say, well, you're just attacking this carcass that's nailed to the cross through Christ. You're right. That person is sinful. That person is wrong. That person didn't get it right. That person's made all sorts of mistakes. But let me tell you about the one who's perfect and good and right and true, Jesus Christ. And all day long, if I don't have to prove myself, but I'm only proving Christ, then I am going to walk in a place that nobody can undo. No one can break down. There's no, there's no trickery of words that are going to undo my arguments because my argument isn't me. My argument is Him. Let's walk in that place, church. Anchored. In truth, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for bringing truth into the confusion that this world is in. Bringing light, bringing an anchor of hope, of absolute truth. We can know what's true. It's not subjective. There are absolutes. And God, in your word, you've given us this beautiful work of truth, something that we can just dig into and be anchored solidly, knowing that every word is true. And as we understand it in its entirety, God, we will be so anchored in what is right and true that nothing, no situation, no persecution, no argument can stand against your truth. We don't have to worry about proving ourselves right. God, we can just show people that you're right. Lord, put a new fire within us to position position ourselves not on our own merits, not on our own authority, but position ourselves in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. This life has overwhelmed me And I feel like giving up I will cling to all you promised It will always be enough When the world around me crumbles It's hard to understand will run to you my shelter I am safe within your hands you are my help forever and I will not fear God you are with me and I know you're near and you'll never leave me I will trust in you alone when I'm 
not alone here in these trials I will hold you faithfully Lord you are my help forever and I will not fear God you are with me and I know that you're near and you'll never leave me I will trust in you alone and when my heart and strength have failed me my God you won't your name is mighty I will trust in you to be reality in my life. I confess, church, there's so many times it's like I get distracted. I have every provision in Christ that I need, and I, and I go start trusting in my own devices, my own arguments, my own ways. We have everything we need in Christ. Let's just make the most of that. I want to encourage you, if you don't know how to read your Bible or where to start, ask somebody. Um, that's one of the things Christians love to do is to show other Christians how to make use of the tool. That We geek out on the tool, right? So ask. Um, it's one of the most important things. I, hopefully you got that this morning, how important this is in your life. I love you, church. Go in the Lord. And don't forget, 3 o'clock at the land. Help set up some Christmas lights.